first shifted focus, right? Pivoting from driving growth to ensuring we have enough cash to as long as we think that this period of uncertainty might last, right? But we acted with purpose. You know, we revisited our multi-year financial plan to see past the end of this or what we believe to be the end to help inform our reallocation of resources in the most thoughtful manner for now, but also for the future. The, the goal was not just cash preservation, but it was also to look beyond past the end. We didn't want to just slash and burn. We want to em emerge with a competitive advantage, hit the ground running. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Backbone, a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. I'm your host, Shabam Data, at Shabam on Twitter. If this is your first episode, welcome, and thanks for checking it out. For those returning listeners, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you've subscribed, rated, and reviewed the show on whichever platform you're hearing this now. It would mean so much to me and help spread the stories of these amazing finance leaders we feature on The Backbone. Joining me on this episode of The Backbone is Daryl Cox, CFO at Venna Solutions, an intuitive budgeting, planning, and revenue forecasting software for medium to large-sized organizations. As the Chief Financial Officer, Daryl designs the forward-looking business strategies and long-range financial plans that sustain Venna's growth. With more than 15 years of senior leadership in finance and business development, Daryl is adept at assembling, directing, and managing knowledgeable dynamic finance teams for such Fortune 500 companies as Virgin Mobile and Rogers Communications. As the former VP of Finance at FreshBooks, Daryl built a high-performance finance team and led the development of key business strategies, management KPIs, and an entire system conversion. Daryl is a chartered accountant and holds a Bachelor of Commerce from the University of Toronto with a focus on finance and economics. And so without further ado, let's hear from Daryl Cox, CFO at Venna Solutions. Hey, Daryl, thanks for joining me on The Backbone. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty going on in the world these days, but uh, we'll get into some of that um, as it relates to, to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to talk about your career journey. So before your role at as a CFO of Venna, you were the VP of Finance at FreshBooks, and prior to that, you spent 10 years in various roles within telco, such as Rogers, Virgin Mobile, and Wind. Talk to me about your career journey into tech and how it all started for you, Daryl. Well, great question. And, and first, uh, thank you very much for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. Um, you know, this is a question I get asked every once in a while. Um, and I, I like to start by saying, like, on the surface, it spends... It looks like I spent a lot of time on telcos, but in fact, I spent a lot of time at startups and uh, growth stage companies, even within telcos. It's not something I, re I, I really planned on, but it was definitely something I always gravitated to, it turns out, and it just, it just kind of happened. I wasn't very methodical about, you know, picking my career opportunities. They, they, they kind of happened in, in, in the background. And in the end, I think I've been very lucky for it because I really enjoy what I do and the big part of of that is being part of growing something, continually doing something different. And it, it gives me a great sense, sense of accomplishment being part of a team like this. And it started really early, actually. Um, my first substantial get a gig, I started, if I can go this far back, I started in high school. And uh, that was a landscape maintenance business I ran for almost six years. That actually ended when my mother sensed that my business was making waste of my university tuition. Um, but it was exciting, <laughs> exciting and a very lucrative uh, business uh, for a student. Um, in fact, I made more money doing that in my last two seasons, like the summers, 
than I did in my first two years of full-time employment at Arthur Anderson. And, and I think that I, I, why I bring this up is because that experience really set the stage for my future. In particularly, it enabled me to get out of my shell. I was, you know, I was like a nerdy um, and, uh, you know, introverted kid. Uh, but to be successful here, I had to actually work with people. Um, and at the beginning of a season, I would knock on doors in the neighborhood where I ha- already had customers and ask them if they needed their yard work taken care of. And I'll, I left a lot of flyers and business cards behind me. And once in a while, I'd pick up a customer. I mean, the conversion rate was not good, uh, but the but the <laughs> cost per lead was super low. Um, so even back then, you were you were you were way ahead of the curve on SaaS metrics there. <laughs> Definitely. Well, that that ties into telco a little bit because we had a lot of the similar metrics, being a subscription uh, industry. That business led me to Arthur Anderson, uh, where I was at the enterprise practice. And that in turn led me to the telcos. And my first role was at Rogers. Um, you know, it was a basic financial analyst role, but it was at Rogers Canguard, uh, which was a small home security company within the cable, Rogers cable envelope uh, that they had acquired through uh, their acquisition of Clean Hunter. And it was run by this super entrepreneurial guy who eventually went on to like tremendous success. He founded Public Mobile. He sold Wind, which is now Freedom to Shaw. And whereas I learned about finance at school and at Arthur Anderson, it was working with Alec where I first learned how to be an effective finance guy. I mean, it took me some time to work out the kinks, but it's really there they learned about the art, about how to get a story out and watching him tell a story and him coaching me on what I needed to do as a finance guy to help him make a story. That was seminal for me. I think I was pretty good at getting to the root of the problem and to focus on the big picture. But what was important is how we could be persuasive and how to look at that thing in different ways. It also being there also helped me to continue to develop my entrepreneurial side. Um, I was part of the leadership team that built and sold that company. And from there, we went on to uh, together to other um, entrepreneurial ventures within Rogers, including Rogers at home. So I was at Rogers, but within a smaller area that focused on entrepreneurial kind of ventures within Rogers. I mean, then Virgin and Wind, Wind were themselves entrepreneurial startup ventures. I mean, you, you had, uh, you know, be, behind Wind, you had the Global Live guys. And at uh, Virgin, you had Richard Branson. These were my first experiences assisting in launching big new businesses with a tremendous amount of capital. I mean, the stakes were, were big. Um, and in there, I built, you know, large-scale business policies, processes from scratch, implementing new business systems, and, and, and also learned um, at a large scale how to improvise and how to just get things done. Um, that, that was really interesting because, you know, they had the really big companies with policies and processes that the parent companies wanted to see implemented, uh, but we just needed to get stuff done. And for in both, well, in all environments up to this point, including at Rogers, we could operate kludging systems together and, you know, being like a Swiss army knife in the finance department was, was, mm-hmm. uh, was important. I mean, you couldn't be a specialist for a long time. You had to be able to do a lot of things and hold it things like MacGyver, hold it together with duct tape and bubble gum for a bit until the real policies and processes and systems came into play. So it definitely was learning how to adapt quick, um, which is, a, you know, something, you know, I was doing at the beginning, but here at a different kind of scale, like how do you adapt and move quick in a huge organization? That was interesting. At FreshBooks, I was way, way more, you know, I took all of that, but I was way closer to the decision making. I mean, we were a smaller company, but the stakes felt the same. I mean, like, you know, Mike, you know, was very, took it very personal, like how he was building that business. It was his, his baby, is his baby. I mean, I, I loved working for Mike uh, to experience like that close 
you know, the energy and vibe and how he, he made decisions. Also, the values he practiced was was extraordinary. It was it was great. And I, I take that from FreshBooks. I was also privileged to work with Mark McLeod at FreshBooks, actually. Um, he, he since went on. I know as you that know, guy. Yeah. <laughs> he went on to found what SurePath Capital. Now, you know, he's helping others raise money full time. But and that's where I learned how to raise money and, uh, you know, and how to build a story from our data uh, to pitch, pitch a business to investors, learning how they thought, like, you know, and so that I could tune a story, tune the, the, the story of the business to impress them about this business and tell them about the value and get them excited about it. So that working with Mark there, I, I learned that part. And then one day, you know, I'm getting the long story. Sorry, it was a short question. <laughs> but uh, then eventually, oh, I, I, you know, I got a, a call from my buddy, uh, a buddy of mine asked me if I'd be interested in hearing more about this company, Vena, because they they needed a CFO. It was it was a tough decision because Vena was very small at the time, and uh, I would be taking a, a risk that way. I mean, I had a fa- young family and a mortgage and such. Furthermore, FreshBooks was a great place to be. I en- I really enjoyed myself there, and I think that uh, you know I was making an impact, and the team was really having an impact. Uh, but the opportunity was just too great in the end to pass up. I mean, I would have the chance to apply everything I learned. Previously, at a company that I, I believed had a chance to be being truly great, and I'd have a bigger impact. And you know, got to say, the product itself was a big attraction because before this, I mean, FreshBooks was accounting, and I'm an accountant, so theoretically, I understand that. But on the storytelling side specifically, at every place I had ever been before Vena, I had always been focusing on you know t- combining data from different sources um, and swizzling it around and getting the story out, and uh, you know. Financial, non-financial. In, in, I, I was working mainly in Excel. In some cases, I had the opportunity to build a data warehouse and have developers work for me to accomplish this. But Venno was actually the tool that does this. And I had been the tool that I've been looking for all the time. It just hadn't been built yet. I couldn't have bought it. Yeah. <laughs> but in the, in the end, it was really a best case opportunity for me. And I'm, I'm happy I made the move. And that was six years ago now. Uh, and so you started to get into uh, this, but I'm going to ask this question explicitly. What is Venice Solutions? What does a company do? And what is it all about? Great question. And it's not super simple. Four Star Vena is a platform. It's a platform for business to support really um, integrated business business planning, reporting, analysis, and it can also support other business processes. We, we mainly sell to the Office of Finance and into the mid-market. Our biggest use cases are budgeting, forecasting, and reporting. Uh, so we do target mid-market, but we're also effective for larger businesses. What differentiates us and why I was so excited to join is that we are a platform and we're also super easy to use. If I can digress a little bit into the founder story, actually, it goes some way to help explain this is that... Um, couple of the co-founders came from another company in what was called corporate performance management space where budgeting and, you know, ops of finance was the target. Uh, but they, you know, that business was sold and they didn't want to go along to the bigger company. And they were thinking, you know, I could do this better. And what mm. they wanted to do is build something super easy to use and flexible. Like the, the root philosophy was not necessarily something for finance, but it was something the entire business could use. It was called spreadsheet process management. Um, but, you know, like taking a page right out of crossing the chasm, it's like you can't teach an entire market about, you know, a new category from, you know, your basement, three guys working in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, so they adapted, right? And they narrowed the focus to the office of finance and they found that, you know, budgeting and planning was an area where there was a lot of uptake. First customers were large enterprise customers um, because that's where we, some uh, another co-founder had experience selling into. 
Um, but it, the root of it was this platform. It wasn't in, it wasn't built specifically for what it is used today. So what you have now is you have a great tool for budgeting and platform that's so easy to use. And the philosophy extended as far as, you know, because when you do something for budgeting and planning, you need grid. Um, but it's like, well, why would we invent a new grid when the best grid in the world already exists? You know, it's called Excel. Yeah. So we'll use that as a user interface for the numbers and then build this build this great tool to make, you know, so use Excel as interface to what is a very robust enterprise prize grade database in the back. Um, and, uh, you know, if you are a finance team and, you know, you know how difficult it can be sometimes using the rigid flex, rigid tools that are out there more commonly available, um, you'd really appreciate how flexible and easy to use Venna is. And, when, you know, once you got your, you know, your GL integrated and Salesforce integrated and multiple data sources integrated into the solution, you know, you have your data at hand fresh when you need it. Um, but then you can start, because it's so easy to use, you can apply it to other applications. So the platform really comes in. It's like a one-stop shop. You can use it for so many more things. And for a mid-market company, they use it for a lot of stuff. Um, for an enterprise customer, they'll probably use it in more of a more limited way, like in a, in a division or some use case mm -hmm. that's on the side. But it's very, very highly effective. And, and the, the real differentiator is so easy to use. Our customers love us. Once you get in there, I mean, we have... Uh, the highest um, uh, user, uh, you know, user, um, how do you say that, satisfaction scores of all yeah. anybody in our space. NPS or however you decide to, to measure that, I guess. Yes, exactly. So yeah, it's yeah. pretty exciting. And I'm uh, super jazzed to be able to use it every day. Nice. You, I assume at Venna, you use Venna. <laughs> <laughs> Very good assumption. And in fact, we try to use it in many uh, different and exciting ways to really extend uh, the long tail of applications. And it's been, it's been highly effective. A couple of themes that we will dive into uh, a little bit later on the show, as you mentioned. So the storytelling aspect, which we'll talk about uh, how the finance role, especially the modern day CFO can play a, a big role in that. But before we get there, I mean, obviously, we have to address the, the elephant in the room, we're recording this podcast in mid April of 2020. And we're currently in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Not to worry, uh, like all Backbone podcasts, uh, we're practicing social distancing and recording remotely. And so uh, there, there's a lot of chatter about what finance leaders can do during this time to ensure their companies can make it through. We've seen things like the Sequoia uh, Black Swan of 2020 letter. We've seen companies that have had to unfortunately lay off or furlough significant portions of the company to weather the storm. But I want to take a bit of a different spin here. And as a company, you know, Venna, as you mentioned, helps finance leaders in organizations plan for the future through its FP&A software. And so to that end, how can finance leaders be ready to capitalize on opportunities during this time and be ready to come back stronger when we're through this? Yeah, ex excellent question. And, and and you're right. It's really crazy out there right now. Have you been to the bank lately? I have not. I've No, uh, no I haven't. People are going to the bank wearing a mask and not getting arrested. It's it's happening. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's a great question. I'm very happy to talk about that. The gloomy news is constant and it's really getting me down. Um, so it's, it can get you down. You know, it's no wonder people are stockpiling like it's an Armageddon. I can, I can remember people filling up their bathtubs for Y2K. I mean, it wasn't toilet paper, but it was it was water, right? And this, this feels worse than that though 
I have and I've attended a few finance focused webinars on the subject and mm-hmm. uh, you know it's it, it, CFOs and, and finance people generally are certainly reflective of this mood and I think our bias is to be even cynical to begin with so it's it's uh, something it's you can get trapped in in the in the finance department at Venno we followed this the prudent path certainly you know as advocated in in the black swan letter um, but and but we have, have added a twist at the end. I don't know that. It, of course, we shift first shifted focus, right? Pivoting from driving growth to ensuring we have enough cash to as long as we think that this period of uncertainty might last, right? Um, but we acted with purpose. We didn't, you know, we revisited our multi-year financial plan to see past the end of this or what we believe to be the end. Um, but we ran multiple scenarios. Uh, you know, taking a look at what it would look like if we did this or did that, or how bad could it be to help inform our reallocation of resources in the most thoughtful manner for now, but also for the future. The, bo- the goal was not just cash preservation, uh, and it certainly was about cash preservation, but it was also to look beyond past the end. We didn't want to just slash and burn, but, and, and, but as an, ex- an example of how this approach has led to a different decision, perhaps a non-intuitive one, is we didn't just drain the discretionary spend out of marketing. Um, we, uh, you know, we thought about, you know, how we're going to emerge at the other end. And if, you know, when is the right time to turn, turn this back on? Like we want to emerge with a competitive advantage, hit the ground running. So based on this, this new multi-year plan, we recut a fully integrated bottom up 12 month plan. So the entire team could realign and work in unison towards these new objectives and more even, maybe even more importantly, uh, we are keeping an extra close eye on the business's very early leading metrics for signs that we may need to adjust, like um, maybe down, but hopefully looking for signs of the of spring, right? Like when should we plant or when should we take that money we've conserved in marketing and to really start to put it to work again? You know, not laying off all our any salespeople, in, in fact, but being ready. Um, so that, you know, we hit the ground running. I mean, fortunately, we have, as we talked earlier, we do have the automation tool in place, although we always have the latest data at hand and uh, ready to use and the ability to repeat this cycle over and over again. Um, but it's most importantly, this placing an extra emphasis on staying positive and keeping our team motivated and energized mm-hmm. so that we emerge as a stronger team and ready to win, like have the resources in the places where save some resources, not just for um, conserve cash, but to spend again to and 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 be poised to do so. And the good news is I don't I don't think we're alone in taking this approach, but I am super happy to be uh, part of an organization that is uh, a couple of things to dig into there. Um, when do you I mean, right now, I think it's it's too soon to know. But um, what are some of the indicators that as a finance leader, you can look to, to know, hey, now is the time to start deploying that capital again? Or um, y- you talked about, you know, um, dialing back some of the growth levers and doing cash preservation. Obviously, that's a fine balance. Um, when do you know to swing one way versus another? If I can unpack that, it's a little bit about um how we are looking far ahead and then how we, how we're going to act. Um, and if what we look at to, uh, to, as a, you know, scan the horizon for, uh, you know, the early signs, imagine us, we're like, we're like an animal in the Serengeti and it's a long period of drought 
and you know we're we're just sitting in the shade all day barely barely moving a muscle uh we haven't ate in a while but we're always scanning that horizon right it's like looking for um you know prey or you know a predator <laughs> but we're looking as far out as we can so we have the most time we we can have to react right and so we're the equivalent for vena now is like we're looking at very early funnel indicators is like what what's the are we generating interest online is the interest going up or is it down and then as you know those metrics go further down in the funnel it's like um it's like are they converting are deals we have in the funnel now are they are they stretching what is the message that we're collecting from and you know so it's it's, it's data that's available on in in for us in salesforce but also data from the sales team um like what is what are they hearing like collecting um non-digital data notice how not much of this is finance data i mean it's like once yeah. you're once you're done, once you've got a churn or a deal booked i mean you're you know or you're far too late right you just you've just been ate by a lion <laughs> it's right. like you're, you're dead yeah those, um, those tend to be more of the lagging indicators <laughs> yes they got to be very very early ones so we got to look we're got to look really far ahead but it's also being poised to act fast right so it's it's collecting this data, having the, the freshest data at hand, looking at it constantly, talking about it, not looking at it once a month or once a, or you know just to the end of the quarter, looking at it beyond the quarter, looking at it you know daily or weekly. Um, the one the one other piece of data financial that we are looking at uh, constantly is cash. So how do these things translate into cash? If your you know sales cycles are 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 pushing out, if mm-hmm. customers are asking you for extended terms. Um, that kind of thing. So cash is really important. Definitely, a, definitely a, f- a finance metric we are uh, always tuned into, but even more so now. But it's those very early uh, metrics, and then it's about acting, right? So do you have the people in the right place able to act? Or do those people on the team remain on the team? Um, and uh, are you able to pivot quickly? Do you have the decision processes in place? And the right people in the room all the time to be able to act and uh, and to pivot quickly. And so far, I think we've 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 done well, and I and I I uh, expect that we will be able to uh, continue to act uh, quickly, uh, given in in this environment of uncertainty. The other thing I wanted to chat through, uh, as I mentioned, was we often hear that the modern CFO or finance leader has to look beyond the numbers. And you talked to me earlier about the need for the CFO to be a bit of a storyteller. Can you elaborate on this? Like, what does this mean? And why is it important for the CFO or any finance leader to be a storyteller? It's, you know, everyone's been in one of those meetings where, uh, you know, it might not even be, it could be anyone, not just a finance guy or a finance person, you know, starts a meeting by throwing up a, a spreadsheet on the screen. It's like wallpaper or an eye chart. You know, it's got like all these little numbers on there and they start to talk to that chart or table and, you know, usually table and, you know, you can see their mouse moving around and you start to think about other stuff, like what you're doing on the weekend, <laughs> you know, your eyes, your eyes glaze over. <laughs> Um, you know, that meeting isn't going to be as productive as it could have been. You still might get somewhere, but, um, you, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's doing it. So that meeting probably didn't start this way, you know, before every, anyone got in the meeting, it's like understanding who's going to be there, 
you know, what you need them to do or what you need them to hear, what decisions need to be made, how they're thinking about it, how your guests are thinking about this, and how you're going to be able to get them to the place you want them to be going in with an objective. Um, and then how do you, how do you, how are you persuasive or compelling? And something I learned when I was mowing lawns is like, how do you, how do you tell the story? Something I learned when, or over again and over again in, in fundraising processes is how do you get these people excited is you've got to tell them a story. It's like, if you know, you don't watch TV shows that are boring, you know, you don't sit in a meeting and learn and get things accomplished when it's boring. You've got to be to the point you've got, you've got to put some, a story around it and, and, and uh, start with, you know, um, doesn't, the conclusion doesn't need to be in the end. In fact, it's probably better at the front is this is what I, I want to leave mm -hmm. with you thinking about. Right. And the, you know, it's not completely looking beyond the numbers, but it's definitely starting before you put the, with before the numbers. It's like, but then you, as a finance guy, it always has to be about the numbers. You back it up with the numbers and that's the way, you know, it, 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 it should be, it should be presented and it's, it can't always be about, and it's certainly beyond the finance numbers because finance numbers alone um, don't tell the whole story. One of my favorite examples there is, is uh, I mean, there's SAS, but there's also the mining company. And this is an example that was used on me a long time ago is I don't know if you've invested in, in a mining stock recently or know anyone who has, but they, I don't know how much they use their financial statements alone, right? Because the value of mm -hmm. the, of the mine you know, the asset itself in, on the financial statements, you know, how much money have they put into the hole? I don't know. Does that tell you how much money they're going to get out of the hole? Yeah. What tells you it's going to come out of the hole is why you're going to want to make the investment. And that's the engineer's report estimating how much gold is at the bottom. I mean, you know, your financial, the financial statement, no, nobody invests in a mine knowing how much, you know, on how much money has gone into the hole alone. It's about how much money is going to come out. You know, the, the, so to be effective as a finance leader in selling and pitching that mine, you need to use other non-financial data and you need to, you know, to get into the hearts of the people you're talking to, those investors. Like they want to know, they don't care how much money you put in the hole, really. They care about how much you're getting out. So you got to tell them that. So it's understanding your audience, getting the right number, putting it in the right frame and giving it to them that way. And, you know, SaaS... This, the SaaS business is very familiar, and it, it goes right to how we've been effective as fundraising, just like the mine has been, a, a, you know, effective at, you know, um, attracting investors. Is, you know, if you just look at our financial statements, you know, and this is why I'm always hesitant to give them to a vendor who doesn't truly understand SaaS, you know, or any other public SaaS company, they lose a lot of money up front. It's like their their EBITDA mm -hmm. net, net net profit or can be really bad, um, and that's because you know, they're investing upfront to acquire customers that are, could be profitable in the long term. And that's what that's what's reflected in the SaaS metrics. So, you know, the SaaS metrics are those like, um, you know, growth, churn, uh, yep. the, the CAC, one of my favorites, and uh, LTV to CAC as an example. But it, it, it doesn't even just stop there, right? It's, it's, it's how those numbers are presented. And mm -hmm. uh, this is where you really need to understand your audience again, and what you're working with in terms of number, you got to take it apart, put it back together again, look at it different ways. What's going to get them excited? Tell the story. Um, and a good example on our fundraising uh, for Vanna, like we started out as an enterprise focused business and then notice, you know, which long sales, closed cycles, really high yeah. cost of acquisition or CAC. Um, but we noticed that mid-market was, was, although we didn't target it, 
mid-market was really picking up as a market segment. And it was, in the end, when you actually analyze it, you found out oh, quite a bit cheaper to sell to them. And, and, and beyond that, the unit economics of lifetime value to CAC were much more persuasive. So we started to intentionally focus on, the, on that segment. And when we put together our pitch deck, we didn't just, you know, focus on the business as, in its entirety. We broke apart the different parts of the business so that you could clearly see how awesome the mid-market business was to expose the fantastic growth and its fantastic key performance indicators mm-hmm. and, you know, make the story in large part about that and how in the future we could really get to, you know, a business that has those metrics overall. Um, I also, you know, it's also important to add though, they shouldn't hide the truth. <laughs> I've had experiences yeah. like that too. So it's not just about exposing the great stuff, um, but it's also about not hiding the old stuff. Last question now, before we jump into our quick fire round, that is what is the biggest misconception about the finance function within growth stage software companies like Vena? I, there is a misconception that I run into quite frequently. Um, and uh, it, it's certainly something in the, in the growth stage business I've seen, but I've also seen it in other, other places. And I think it's about what value finance can really deliver. And I think a lot of, a lot of this has to do about how, how finance um, sometimes gets lost in the weeds and doesn't get the story out. And that's, and that's the finance is really, you know, the misconception is finance is about tax, technical accounting, and it's boring, mm-hmm. you know, and that like accountants cannot drive operational finance value and deliver something exciting. They don't, you know, and when that happens, finance doesn't get a seat at the table and, you know, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. They don't get to add the value that, that, that they can deliver. Um, I remember starting a role once upon a time and my new boss suggested I meet with a finance guy he had worked with before to help educate me so that I would understand what he expected in his finance, in his finance leader. Mm-hmm. Um, I went, I met that guy. He was a great guy. He was, he was a really great tax guy and that's what he did taxes. That's it. Um, so I'm like, wow, like really? You just, <laughs> I'm not even a tax guy, so I'm not going to yeah. do really well. Uh, this is going right. to be a bad outcome. So I was pretty worried at that point, actually, when I went back to work after having met this guy who was supposed to be my example. Um, fortunately, uh, that expectation evolved as our relationship grew, and he saw that I was able to add a lot more value. Um you know, we were able to get some things done and finance really assisted in getting those things done. And it was especially in specifically because of the way we were able to get data out, tell, let the data present the, the story the data told and uh, get it in front of the right person to help them make a better business decision. And uh, because of that, um, I'm, I'm super happy to say we grew to like each other and we were a very <laughs> successful team. <laughs> But uh, it started off in, you know, in the cliche kind of way. And I've seen that in a lot of big companies, right, where the finance department, I was at another company where uh, the finance department was, they, they uh, I'm not even kidding, we, the, the policy of the company was almost to the point where I believe, and it's probably not true, but they only hired people who didn't speak English because it was like um and it was because you know the information was private and confidential and finance wasn't supposed to speak to anyone and get the story out i'm also happy to say that that organization evolved considerably over the time i was there and uh, finance 
wound up in that organization also wound up having a, a great impact. Um, I, I entered that organization at a period of transition when uh, the finance leadership was evolving. Um, and yeah. for the for the specific purpose of getting the story out, so I was able to see, you know, how um, firsthand how uh, you know an, an organization can evolve um, and and get draw more out of their finance finance team. And so it's it's not about thinking about the finance uh, team as like this point solution for doing accounting and tax, but taking an, on a more holistic view of the organization and um, having a, a finance leader or a team that can tell the story of, of the uh, company and back it up with numbers versus the other way around. Yes. And it's not just fundraising, right? Like I, that, it's particularly obvious, I think, in fundraising, how you need to tell the story to investors. Um, but it's throughout an organization and in many cases, of uh, in, 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 in organizations, I've had to draw on, you know, sales funnel data, inventory data. So, you know, number of units or, you know, conversion rates and cohorts and such just to, to improve the internal efficiency and effectiveness of the organization to do more for less, to do a better job, to get to our objectives quicker not just not just for fundraising. So what I wanted to do now is jump into our quick fire round. The way this works is I'll ask you some questions. You'll have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? I'm ready. Hit me. All right. What's your go-to online resource for all things finance related? So this is a tough one. Um, it's not a single source, mm-hmm. but if you really look, because I, I use a, a, a lot of things, but I don't uh, it's Google, really. Like the, my first, the first thing I'll do when I need to figure out something is I'll just do a Google search, and a bunch of stuff will pop out. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'll wind up at different in different places almost every time. But the uh, the one resource I really could, I mean, apart from, I really couldn't live without is my network. I do reach out. I do reach out to right. my network quite often. Um, I enjoy a pretty broad network of different people who are not always finance people, but definitely a great a great network of finance people that uh, we meet once in a while and share stories, but also talk about technical things, like how much you pay for this, how much you pay for that. You can't you can't get that online. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, the network is very key for sure. What's your favorite productivity hack? Uh, I need to take a break once in a while. So That's a good one. If I am just bolted to my desk, I can go, it seems, for hours at some point and not and not get up but uh, mm. i'll get i'll get stale i'll uh lose my uh lose my cool <laughs> yeah. i gotta get up walk around go outside go for a jog and i always come back refreshed. And being with the family and doing something completely different for a little while i'm right. still thinking in the background i'll get to a better place if i'm able to do that totally uh what's one thing you don't leave the office before finishing and i guess in the uh environment where we're working from home what's one thing you (laughs) don't leave your desk before finishing for the day i don't leave my desk (laughs) i'm just like i just bolted to my desk to the great (laughs) chagrin of my wife and family um but uh i'm I'm only semi-kidding uh it's i had i just do one last scan on all my and answer those important last important emails sometimes it's a i just get you know i could get 200 emails in a day mm-hmm. important emails might get lost i need to i need to go back and scan all my emails do search for a couple of you know the important things i'm working on or names people I need to right. respond to just so i don't i don't lose sight of that uh, it's critical making sure i don't uh 
uh, get everything where I want it yeah, to be. Yeah, definitely. Um, what's uh, what's a jargon that makes you cringe? Am I allowed to say more than one? <laughs> sure. What's, what's your top top? Top dragon, and then you can do okay. a top five list or top. Uh, well, all right, I want okay, three, three. I don't want to. Um, does that make sense? Usually, you find people use that in a kind of like, of course, it makes sense kind of way. They don't really want you to say no. I love saying no. That <laughs> doesn't make sense. <laughs> I wouldn't be asking the question if it made sense. Usually, so that that one irks me. Um, another favorite of mine is uh, think just think outside the box. <laughs> Anybody who needs to use a cliche to explain exactly what the cliche means, like don't use a paradigm to think, just think. Um, That one always, I think, ironic. And one of my favorite favorite ones, this one is this one isn't doesn't make me cringe; it makes me laugh. Is CAC? You know, cost of the acronym for cost of acquisition. Everybody wants their cost acquisition to be really small. Right. That makes me laugh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah totally and and lastly um what's the best advice you've received so far in your career yeah there's a bunch that's that's another one where i have a hard time narrowing it down it's like it's slow down be patient um and nobody's going to die like that's you know we're not in a hospital operating room mm-hmm. um and uh you know where i mean it's important it's urgent people are, might lose money but it's like you got to be able to prioritize, compartmentalize, schedule things, not get too excited. Like I'm, I'm prone to, I always like to run really fast and I'm anxious and I want to get things done and I want them done exactly a certain way. Yeah. And sometimes that leads me to um, be overbearing um, or, you know, to impulses that I've really had to learn to, to control over the time and a lot. And I remember exactly this point in time where you know um somebody i worked for who i really learned a lot from sat me down and said daryl you just need to slow down and be patient Hmm. no nobody's gonna die here (laughs) yeah and i live by that now it's uh and it's it's really improved uh my ability to get things done actually you know um counterintuitively it's like by being less anxious by being less stressed about it by pushing slower and less hard, mm-hmm. you get more better things done. Yeah, wow, that's good advice for sure. Well, Daryl, uh, thank you so much for spending some time with me and, and chatting about all that we discussed on, on the show today, uh, particularly you know, how to deal with times like this um, and thinking about how to come out of it uh, stronger than, than we entered it and the role that a finance leader can play uh, as part of that and the importance of storytelling. Um, you know, we are faced with many sources of data and looking at numbers all the time, but how do you make sense of all that and package it and tell a story out of it? Cause that, cause that's what really people care about. And people at the end of the day, we're a species of storytellers. And so how the finance leader and the CFO can play a role in that. I think that was very insightful. So thank you for sharing that and uh, really appreciated the time today. Thanks again. Well, Shabam, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I really enjoy listening to all the people you've had on the show. And that's one of the worst things about the C-19 thing is my uh, commute time has really gone down. So I'm not getting as much podcast as I want to. So um, thank you for doing this. Yeah, well, I I did not pay you enough to say that. So uh, thank you again for the kind words. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye now. 
And that wraps up another episode of The Backbone. I hope you enjoyed this awesome conversation with Daryl Cox, CFO at Venice Solution. Check out some of the other awesome finance leaders featured on The Backbone from companies like Ecobee, Wealthsimple, League, and many more. Thank you for listening all the way through and joining me on this journey inside finance at a tech company. Until next time, take care.